Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 240 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the cholesterol level episode of the SLS Cast. Because it turns out that if you have a cholesterol level that is considered high risk, your cholesterol level is at least 240. And with that wonderful little bit of heart health knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Luckily, my cholesterol has not ever hit 240, but I'm sure there's at least six people right now going to check their cholesterol or, or just turning off the episode because they realized that all this time their cholesterol was too high. Maybe, maybe. Of course, they could just be going for the box of Cheerios. Hey, this is heart healthy. Right? Ooh, the multigrain Cheerios. Yeah, it's all crazy. I don't know. So, <laughs> How the hell are you? I am doing pretty good. I watched A League of Their Own in a cemetery this past weekend, and I kind of forgot how great of a movie that was, or that is. It is a good movie. Did you go see it when it first came out? Uh, I, I saw it on the blockbuster circuit, is, you know, since, since we're in, in the parlance of A League of Their Own. You know, I, I, I saw it on the blockbuster circuit. My mom rented it Yeah, back in the day, and that was the first time I saw it. And uh, I, I don't know, it didn't really strike me as the kind of movie that I would want to see. Um, but it was decent. It was decent at the time. And and then, of course, Jen's watched it in, in the intervening years, and it's been on, or what have you, and blah, 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 blah. So, I mean, I've seen it probably half a dozen times at this point, and it, is, and it has grown on me over the years. I actually kind of realized just how good it was and the importance of the movie. Um, and, and, uh, I don't know. I think it's really cool just to see a slice of Americana that is long forgotten, but still really embodies a lot of the different kinds of things that have shaped us as a country in a better, in a better way. Because while it was centered around women's baseball, um, it did kind of drive home the point of the jobs and the things that women were doing that they were, not considered able to do, um, or at the very least, how dare they presume to do under normal circumstances. And yet, there they are building our planes and building our boats and doing our ammunition and uh, and then filling in for professional sports and stuff like that. I think it's, you know, it's just one facet that's really cool. See, I remember only watching the movie like on TBS or TNT as a kid, and I think I've only watched it once, unedited, commercial-free, back in the early... I think it came out in 92, so maybe around like 94, 95. I, I have a pretty good memory of watching it, like the VHS copy at some friend's house or whatever. And I don't know if you ever experience this nowadays, but do you ever watch like a movie where you have like this realization? For example... When we went to go see this movie at the cemetery, we've got pretty good seats there on the lawn. Where did you just say? 
Did you just say cinematary? It could have been a cinematary. If you didn't, that is what you should call that from now on. The cinematary. <laughs> no, the, the, well, the cemetery is the Hollywood Forever Cemetery where, like, for, I think Frank Sinatra and Mel Blanc is buried there. And, you know, it, it's the place where you go, and if you want to have a cigarette in the cemetery, <laughs> they have a smoker's <laughs> lounge where uh, you, you are basically surrounded by tombstones and graves of people who died from lung cancer. Which is nice, uh, delightful. Jules Brenner, the Jules Brenner's is right there. You know? Quite, pro- quite possibly, quite possibly. A, a lot of Jewish folk, a lot of Jewish people that probably dumped their life savings into their family plot just so they could get buried there in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. So we were sitting there watching the movie, and you know how it begins and ends with the old version of Gina Davis, her character's old version, and mm-hmm. for the yeah, longest yeah, time. I always thought, yeah, okay, that, that, that's a that's an old lady, you know, playing her. It's just a woman that kind of looks like her. So I, I was actually watching the movie, and I thought until the end of the movie when I could confirm this that that was actually Gina Davis in really awesome old age makeup for 1992, because the lady who they cast to play older Gina Davis is so goddamn great like she looks just she sounds like her looks very much like her it's absolutely scary and i was pretty uh confident that every other character they they hired an older lady to play the older actress except gina davis because you know gina davis has that very distinct kind of voice and whenever you have to cast her as an old person she should automatically just play her old self i suppose but no i felt very stupid as i leaned over to the so because this is my so's favorite one of her favorite movies and she had a laugh when i commented early on that gina davis is is a very underrated actress and whoever did the makeup for this movie i can't believe they didn't win best makeup because damn they did a, a good job and of course she thought i was kidding until i was blown away by so-and-so plays old Gina Davis during the credits. The character's name is not old Gina Davis. It's whatever her character is, but... <laughs> Just old whatever her character's name is. Exactly. In and, and the cemetery, though, the, what, what, there is something else that I experienced for the first time there. It's very interesting because sometimes, you know, people get on their phone and look up shit at these open-air screenings and outdoor screenings and shit... I went to Dirty Dancing the weekend beforehand, and there weren't a lot of gay guys there. There was a lot of girls with their girlfriends, but for some reason, I, I guess a league of their own pulls in the gay crowd. But there was a guy sitting maybe three feet away from my SO who was constantly on Tinder looking at... I, I feel confident in myself in saying that these guys were very good-looking. Like, they, it, was, it was hunks of meat this guy was looking at. But what I found interesting, and they're all shirtless and stuff when he's looking at the pictures, is that he had the heart... He, it took him, like, a good hour and a half to figure out if he was going to swipe either left or right. And multiple times he kept flipping on his phone and, like, zooming in and inspecting this guy's upper pubic area that was able to be seen a little bit from the shorts. And that made an excellent companion view with a league of their own nothing says great early americana or mid-1900s americana like trying to figure out your next fuck buddy when this movie is done with wow well okay then (laughs) and you just mentioned this so i decided to look it up uh dirty dancing 
we I think we need to do something about this. It turns 30 this year. Oh. August 21st. Well, would it be a did it age well or was it worthy? Probably oh, was it worthy, huh? Probably a combo. I think it would have to be a combo because uh, it was a $6 million movie plagued with all sorts of issues that ended up doing $214 million at the box office. And that was a fucking great movie, too. I haven't seen that one without commercials in years, and I had yeah. so much fun watching it. And it also won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. Ooh, which one's that? Just kidding. Yeah. Well, I don't know, because, I mean, you've got I've Had the Time of My Life, you've got Hungry Eyes. That was nominated like also, I think, you've wasn't got, it? So, I'm, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm just like, wow. So, I mean, it had all that. Uh, it even got, a. T- was it worthy of getting a TV movie this year? See, I think we need to compare those two. <laughs> had a made-for-TV remake that aired in May of this year. And do you know who starred in it? Uh, the little girl from Little Miss Sunshine, Abigail Breslin. Seriously? For real. Wow. That is crazy. Okay. But it was great seeing Dirty Dancing the weekend that I saw Baby Driver because that was the original movie with a with a character named Baby in it. And uh and Patrick Swayze played the original Baby Driver, if you if you get my <laughs> meaning. <laughs> yeah. I like how you went there. That was fun. Anyway. We've been uh, toying with some stuff. We talked about some stuff here, and uh, we, 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 we've decided that we're going to try a little bit of a format change on the show here. Uh, we, we, we are looking at uh, kind of tightening up some things on the show, and so the bonus segments now are really and truly going to go back to being bonus. So in the true fashion of bonus... If we have time and we get to them, we're going to do that. Now, what we're bumping this week, unless there's time, is news. Uh, but going forward, we're going to really try and make the bonus segment an actual bonus segment and uh, focus on better discussions of really good news pieces and really kind of hoping to get to the nitty gritty on the news. But before we can even do any of that, I believe it's time to check the old mail sack, isn't it? Check that mail sack, check it good. Check that mail sack like you should. <laughs> So did you hear the castration uh, sound? I did. I thought it was pretty funny. I I like that one. The people next to me when I was putting that together really liked that as well. I'm I'm sure. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, you've just heard it again. Because uh, alas and alack, we have no emails this week. But we still do want to hear from you. Um, I I, I would much rather hear the yay sound than the ah! sound but uh, it is what it is if you'd like to send us an email we'd love to hear from you uh please send us an email to the show at slscast.com as far as twitter followers we got uh three more twitter followers this week so a little light week there as well but that's okay because tim tells me we've hit a milestone that's right matthias we are currently at 501 followers on twitter we crossed the 500 threshold mark that is awesome so if you want to follow us at the sls cast on twitter we would love that as well and i think without further ado let's jump into that bonus segment what do you say sir jump on in here we go folks it's third square Thank you. 
This week's Three Squared, we're actually covering our favorite dinner party scenes. Now, again, we did stress that this is not like my dinner with Andre. This is not like people who met up for a dinner um, in like two couples or something like that. We need a, a party situation happening here. So as much fun as, you know, well, I have, you know, I have nipples. Can you milk me? As much fun as that would be to include, that's that's more dinner table. We're looking for uh, dinner party. And it turns out that due to our love of this topic, we both kind of bent the rules here a little bit. Um, but But it's all dinner parties. They're, they're all parties revolving around meals. That's happening. So, in order of favorite to most favorite, right? We're going to go three, two, one this time. From 1976, Murder by Death. Now, I have mentioned Murder by Death before uh, in other aspects and even for different three squared categories. But this also rings true for this particular topic as well because... What we have here is a gathering of the most renowned, world-renowned detectives. And, of course, this is a complete spoof, right? So we have uh, Sidney Wang instead of Charlie Chan, right? Dick and Dora Charleston instead of Nick and Nora Charles, that kind of thing, right? So they've all come together to, uh, they've been invited by this reclusive millionaire guy who uh, offers a prize of a million dollars to solve a mystery over the weekend at his house. <laughs> He lives at Tutu Twain. Get it? <laughs> I will tell you, Mr. Wang, if you can tell me why a man who possesses one of the most brilliant minds of this century can't say his prepositions or articles. The, Mr. Wang. What is the meaning of this? That's what I said. What meaning of this? The meaning of this is that I have decided to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the greatest living criminologist in the world is sitting at this table and you are all looking at him. No, don't look at each other. Look at me. I'm the greatest. I'm number one. To me, you look like number two. Know what I mean? What does he mean, Miss Skeffington? I'll tell you later. It's disgusting. At any rate, so the opening of the movie has everyone gathering so that they can come to this dinner party. And the actual dinner party scene is amazing. We've got a, we've got a blind butler and a, uh, mute, uh, server. And they're trying to work this party who also, that we're at, we have everyone here, uh, who's attempting to solve a supposed mystery that hasn't happened yet. And then we get the actual appearance of uh, the multimillionaire Lionel Twain, played by Truman Capote, actually. So this is even more of a treat if you're into Truman Capote at all. The entire dinner party scene not only truly gives you the segue into the main plot of the movie, but is hilarious besides. Uh, you get to see all the eccentricities of everyone involved. Great acting. And unfortunately, as funny as it is, I do have to point out that it would definitely be deemed ultra-racist today uh, because of Peter Sellers playing Sidney Wang. And he is, of course, in full uh, Asian makeup and stuff like that. So, um, while those jokes will fall f flat today due to the nature of them spoofing, A, spoofing Charlie Chan, and B, then of course, the, some of the jokes that they make is, um, uh, 
you know, done because of the accent and makeup and stuff. Um, the rest of that narrative, though, is still absolutely hilarious. And it is definitely one of the better Neil Simon projects as far as I'm concerned. Now, the movie hasn't, in and of itself, hasn't aged the greatest. Um, and it is something that you can note would be a play turned into a movie. But the comedy and the story, and if you're a fan of murder mysteries, especially the classics, you're going to love it because it's everything that you love to hate about those classics and all the things that you legitimately love turned on their ear and made fun of. And the focal point becomes that dinner party scene. So murder by death there. Next up, we have 1984's. Hey, I just realized they're in chronological order too. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Now, this of course is a prequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark, but of course we know it takes place after, hence prequel. Um, but the fun of this movie is you not only get to see how everyone behaves and, and you get to see their characters kind of grow and expand. But you also get to see the most outlandish and ridiculous ideas of foreign delicacy. And I mean, everything, you know, do you have something simple like a soup and, you know, the eyeballs come floating up and everything like that, you know, and they slice open the snake and the baby snakes come. I mean, you have all this stuff that's going and basically, I mean, it was written to be a gross out thing. It was supposed to literally just be completely outlandish and they designed it as such. And yet when I first saw it, I was like, seriously, these people really eat chilled monkey brains. Are you kidding me? I mean. I didn't know I was a kid. If memory serves me correctly, this area, this province, was the center of activity for the thuggy. Oh, sneak surprise. What a surprise. What? <laughs> You're not eating? I had bugs for lunch. <laughs> Give me your hat. Why? Because I'm going to puke in it. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. Uh, do you have anything simple, like soup? So... You are experiencing the gross out factor, which is kind of fun because when you look back on it and you realize everything that goes into it, you realize the joke is just as much on you as it is on the characters in the movie, especially with Kate Capshaw, who is playing Willie in the film. And she is just like screaming and passing out and everything like that. Um, and I recently watched a behind the scenes on Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it was really funny because like, especially with the soup that has the eyeballs in it, they had put like some suction gelatin stuff at the bottom of that bowl. And so she literally had to like jab at those eyes to get them to float to the top of the thing. And so, uh, you know, it's really funny to, to realize that when she's dipping in there and looking so nice, she's actually having to really go to town on that bowl <laughs> to get that, to get that effect. Um, so again, watching all that. And then of course you're getting the, you're not only getting the gross out factor and the foreign delicacy thing that is completely outlandish, but at the same time, you're really getting to see the wild and wacky side of the characters themselves. You see how, uh, Harrison Ford is just seemingly completely at home with all, with everything that's going on. 
you also get to see Kate Capshaw uh, and um, oh good lord um, Jonathan K. Kwan who's uh, short round you see him kind of like what the hell is happening here but you also get to see kind of the way that the palace is living uh outside of the way that the village is living and everything like that so the story is not it is also really really tied into how everything plays off that dinner party so the dinner party scene is not only amazing and fun and outlandish but also once again plays a extreme role in developing the plot of the movie so I love that one. I just love watching the craziness of it and how she ultimately passes out and everything. It's fantastic. Uh, finally, we have 2010s or 2011, depending on, you know, where you're looking at that. Uh, but 2010s, The Perfect Host. This is a black comedy, American, uh, a psychological thriller film. And it, uh, stars David Hyde Pierce in the, in the, role of Warwick Wilson, who is planning to host a dinner party. And he is interrupted, but at the same time, uh, who is interrupted by, then becomes a kind of a guest, if you will, for this dinner party. Now, this is where I kind of broke the rules, because the dinner party, is strictly speaking, is happening the whole time the movie is going, because it's either about to start it's getting set up or it's actively participating uh between the characters in the film uh and spoiler alert on this one so if you don't want any more you're gonna have to come back later but spoiler on this uh, the dinner party is the whole movie which is why i'm breaking the rule on it because the dinner party doesn't exactly exist everything is existing in David Hyde Pierce's head. And so it is just so much fun to watch the entire movie unfold for this payoff. And you're just like, you are so engrossed and wrapped in what's happening that you don't really put it all together until it's given to you. And then you're like, wow, I did not see that coming. I don't understand how it all worked out. And you start to replay all these moments in your head and you're like, oh my God, I get it. I get it. And then even after the payoff is given to you, there's still more to the movie. So, I mean, it's not like you're left hanging or anything. This, and so the whole movie revolves around the dinner party that's being set up that's hosted by David Hyde Pierce, who is, of course, the perfect host. This movie is also just fantastic fun from start to finish. And I love it. Love it, love it, love it. So, again... My picks for my favorite dinner party scenes, Murder by Death from 1976, uh, 1984's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and then 2010's slash 2011's The Perfect Host. What do you got there, Tim? All right, so my three. Starting with the newer one, it very well might be my favorite out of the bunch uh, because I think I think about this movie a lot more than all the others, probably more than I should. And I guess I find it funny uh, because it was a movie that Matt and I reviewed a few years ago, I think in 2013, it completely caught me off guard because I was not expecting this to be as good as it was. And this film is a movie directed by Todd Berger, starring David Cross, American Ferrara, uh, Julius Stiles, and a number of other comedians, and it is entitled... It's a disaster, yes. It's a little movie that I think a lot of us would consider to be a black comedy, uh, but I think I would just 
call it a comedy because it's not really trying to be serious at all. And I kind of think with if it was supposed to be a black comedy, what they are treating as ultra serious is funny, but it's just funny because they're not really being all that serious. Regardless, so this group of friends get together on a regular basis for a brunch at a couple's house named Pete and Emma, and that's where they hold this regular brunch. You get the idea that they've they've known each other for many, many years. They live out in the suburbs, but there's one character played by Julia Stiles, and her character is Tracy. At this particular brunch, for the first time, she is introducing her boyfriend, her new boyfriend named Glenn, played by David Cross, to her group of friends. And basically, right off the bat, the brunch really doesn't go all that well. Glenn is a professor. He is a religious freak, kind of, sort of, which is kind of funny because David Cross is not a religious freak whatsoever. And he, he's just kind of weird. He's not the only problem. This entire group has problems because as they're sitting around for this brunch, the men decide to excuse themselves. They go out in the garage to go watch a football game or baseball game or something like that. And that's when they discover that the TV and the internet and the phones are down. And of course, right off the bat, Pete, who's the husband of Emma, who owns the house, automatically accuses Emma, his wife, that she didn't pay the bills on time. That's why. And they start getting this horrible argument. Then you realize quickly that they're going through a divorce. That automatically catches everybody off guard because everybody else looked up to Pete and Emma as the ideal couple, that nothing will break their bond and all all this silly stuff. And then as the movie goes on, you quickly realize that there are other tensions within every single couple, including Glenn and Tracy, which is uh, Julia Stiles and David Cross again, because there's only so much that Tracy can take of Glenn because he is so fucking different than her friends that she actually cares about and, and likes to actually spend time with. Because um, mainly Glenn just overanalyzes everything. Where'd you and Tracy meet? Online. Yeah, no shame in that. That's where we found our vet. That's great. That's really good. Yeah, it'll help you get through this. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? The couple's brunch. Oh, no, I'm looking forward to it. Really? Yeah, sure. Huh. Can I ask you a question, Glenn? Sure. If you had to call someone up, tell them some bad news, would you tell them right away or would you chit-chat first? Chit-chat. Yeah, you know, small talk. How you doing? No, I... What's going on? No, I know, and I know. This weather just... It's crazy. Right, right. No. Um, uh, well, I suppose it would depend on the severity of the bad news. Hmm. Uh, well, if I'm calling to let somebody know that, um, you know, a family member passed away, then no chit-chat. I wouldn't beat around the bush with that. Right. Um, but if I was calling to let them know that, uh, you know, they didn't get an apartment, then, mm -hmm. yeah, chit-chat. Uh, you know, hmm. talk a little bit. You in the apartment rental business? No, no, I'm a teacher. So why do you call people and tell them they didn't get an apartment? I, I don't. I'm sorry, I thought the conversation was hypothetical. No, the conversation is real, Glenn. The problem is hypothetical. Once it comes out that they're getting a divorce, there's like a knock on the door and they realize there's a guy outside, it's their neighbor, and he appears wearing like this hazardous chemical waste, end of the world, biohazard suit. 
And pretty much what he tells them is that a bomb went off nearby. And sooner rather than later, hazardous waste is going to be dropping from the skies and will more than likely kill everybody if they don't seek shelter or find themselves a biohazard suit to wear or whatever. It's Hal. What? Who's Hal? He's our neighbor. Does he always wear a hazmat suit? What does Hal want? I don't know. Is there a reason to be afraid of Hal? No, he's nice. I mean, he doesn't mow his lawn enough, but I don't... Can I suggest that maybe we let him in and then we can find out what he wants from his mouth? Hey, Hal. Emma? Hey, Hal. You guys having a party? Brunch. Oh, that's cool. Guess I missed my invite. They dismissed the guy at first, but a number of events happened which makes them change their mind and realize, like, shit, something is actually going down. And without giving too much away, it just keeps getting worse. Not necessarily the disaster, because that's bad enough. It's just all of these characters, some of them are, like, very conceited, self-righteous, They have these personal issues that they want to get straight with everybody else or with their significant other. It doesn't matter if they're going to die. It doesn't matter if their friends are going to die very soon. They want to make sure that they're getting their point across and they're going to get their shit listened to. The movie takes off with the brunch, with them sitting around the table You're introduced to everybody's personalities and quirks, these characters' personalities and quirks. And the movie ends with them around the same exact table. And I, again, without giving anything away, because I know a lot of you have not seen this movie, they have to make a decision as to what their next step will be with dealing with this disaster. And even at that time, it's done in a very funny way. I'm not going to tell you exactly how, but even at that time, they still can't do it because there's that one person that fucks it up for everybody else, and it's absolutely hilarious. And what I really appreciate about this movie is that there's not really one asshole of the group. There's not really one horrible person. They're all pretty bad people, which makes it that much fun and entertaining to watch. Next up on my list is from 1959, the Vincent Price classic, House on Haunted Hill. Yes, this is directed by the great William Castle. It stars, again, Vincent Price, Carol Omhart, Elisha Cook, Carolyn Craig, Alan Marshall, Julie Mitchum, Richard Long. This is a movie that always interested me as a kid. I watched this at the age of four or five in no other horror film that I watched after could ever really compete with this movie. It's not one of the best horror movies, and let alone, I mean, it's not even one of the best Vincent Price movies, but for some reason, it, it really nailed that creepy atmospheric tone that went on to, uh, to inspire a lot of other movies that do get better recognition than this one. It's a fun, campy film where Vincent Price invites all these people. He's like he's this eccentric millionaire. Frederick Lauren is his name. He invites five people to this party that he's throwing in this big mansion that he rented. And apparently it's a haunted house. And it's a it's a party for his wife named Annabelle, played by Carol Omhart. He makes a deal with all these folks when they're in the house, saying that if you can survive 
one full night in this house, you will receive $10,000. If all of you survive, you each get $10,000. If only one of you survives, only one of you gets $10,000. When the clock strikes 12 midnight, the doors will be shut, locked, and nobody can get in or out. You just have to survive. Now, before the party begins, let's go over the details. The caretakers will leave at midnight, locking us in here until they come back in the morning. Once the door is locked, there's no way out. The windows have bars that a jail would be proud of, and the only door to the outside locks like a vault. There's no electricity, no phone, no one within miles, so no way to call for help. Like a coffin. So, if any of you decide not to stay for the party, you must let me know before midnight. Of course, if you leave, I shan't be able to pay you anything. I'm interested in your reasons for this, uh, party. Aside from pleasant company. Ghosts, Doctor. I think everyone wonders what they would do if they saw a ghost. And damn, it's an entertaining movie. Because it's an obvious movie that's purposefully trying to be creepy and just set that eerie tone. These people, when they arrive, they don't arrive in private limousines or taxis or anything like that. They arrive late at night, probably very close to midnight, so they have to make that split decision stay or not. They arrive in separate funeral cars, in hearses, very much like a procession, like being led to their own deaths. And it's a haunted house flick where there's trap doors, people who you think aren't dead are dead, people who you think are dead aren't dead, false assumptions, pointing fingers so you never really know who's good, who's bad, who has the ulterior motive, who does not. Is Vincent Price the bad guy? Why, what is his motive? Why are these people there? And you see a lot of stuff like this in the movie Clue as well. Granted, I think Clue is definitely the better movie itself, but when it comes to the atmosphere and just that idea of being invited to a party with a small group of people, but then there's like a task. There's something you have to achieve or complete. And if you don't do it successfully, probably end in death. There's just something absolutely fascinating about it. So that's why I included House on Haunted Hill on this list. And then finally, from 1939, the excellent film directed by Jean Renoir, The Rules of the Game. A lot of people really don't know about this movie. But it's your classic upstairs-downstairs movie, before movies like this were even labeled as upstairs-downstairs comedies. The film was virtually hated by a lot of the French, because the film itself is a critique on corrupt French society. The French apparently don't like being made fun of, even though they like to laugh. The French love comedy, but if the joke is on them, they're not down for that. Uh, the movie did totally bomb at the box office. It got banned by the occupying Nazis when they got into town soon after. A lot of people argue that this film is one of the most colorful films of all time, despite it actually being in black and white. And that is because of its characters in the endless bursts of energy. And the film would continue existing in scrutiny after the film's flop, with the first audience that saw it at its premiere, they responded so negatively 
the studio was basically forced to recut the movie. So it wasn't until Criterion released their DVD version in the early 2000s when the original film was actually restored and made readily available to fans who only witnessed the movie, like the poor quality version that was released on TV or the Laserdisc version, which was still the cut, not really proper version of the movie. It takes place right at the beginning of World War II, and right off the bat, it opens with a pilot named Andre Giraud, and he just completed a record-setting flight, and he wanted to be greeted by the love of his life, who is actually married to somebody else. But instead, she's not there. He is being greeted by uh, an adoring crowd who just loves this man. They hold him on, on such a high level, but he is just not satisfied with it. But the bulk of the movie takes place in this country home, where this couple by the name of Robert and Christine are hosting this hunting party. As all these guests arrive, you have the upper-class bourgeois, the hoity-toity aristocratic Frenchies, and then you have people like the lower-class help. When all the guests first meet each other, they're very cordial, but it, right off the bat, you know everybody's hiding something. They all have this disdain for one another. And, you know, in their own right, you know, I guess in some way they have a reason for having that disdain. And so as the movie proceeds, you slowly find out how intertwined these people are, whether it being affairs, love triangles, uh, somebody wrongs somebody, and there may or may not be a murder in the film or not, that now there's a mystery who murdered who. But the movie did inspire John Huston's film Gosford Park, if that means anything to you at all. So yeah, do check out The Rules of the Game from 1939. If you can only check out one of these, definitely put that one on your list. So my three again, It's a Disaster from 2012, House on Haunted Hill from 1959, and finally The Rules of the Game from 1939. Awesome! Okay, well, that does conclude the bonus segment for this week. I think we have nothing left but the news, right? That is correct. All right, then. Here we go, folks. It's the movie. And this week's new uh, news, this week's movies are Akjaw, uh, which is on Netflix, and then, of course, Spider-Man Homecoming, which is in the theaters. Uh, where do you want to start first, sir? How about Akjaw? Sure. All right, folks. Akjaw. We needed a miracle. And then we got one. This beautiful and special little creature will be a revolution in the livestock industry. Our super pigs will not only be big and beautiful, they will also leave a minimal footprint on the environment, consume less feed, and produce less excretions. And most importantly, they need to taste fucking good. Ten years in planning, on the cusp of a product that will feed millions. And what happens? That farmer girl is going to destroy us. You should know the situation is not good. Each night before you It's such a shame you have to tell all those little white lies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Nakja, 2017 action adventure film directed by uh, Bong Joon Ho, uh, and is co-written by Bong and John Ronson. Uh, it's an ensemble cast film starring Tilda Swinton, Paul Dano, An Sin Hyu, Byun Hee Bong, Stephen Yung, Lily Collins, Yoon Ji Moon, uh, Shirley Henderson, Daniel Henson, Devin Bostic, Choi Woo Sheik, Giancarlo Esposito, and Jake Gyllenhaal. What we have here is basically the story of a super pig. Uh, think part hippo, part pig, part kind of rhino-ish, um, and, and like bred genetically to be this thing. Um, and the company that makes the pig, or that made the super pig, uh, is wanting to really promote this as a new pork to help uh, feed the world and help eliminate hunger and everything and to help kind of boost the idea of the viability of the super pig they hold a contest and the contest is a worldwide contest 12 different super pigs were given to 12 different people around the world in uh, 12 different countries and so they were to raise the super pig, and then, of course, the winner of the best super pig. Uh, get that super pig comes back to New York, big parade, blah, 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 so on and so forth. Um, and much like any other, uh, you know, genetic thing run by a corporation, they do checks and quality assurance and stuff like that going forward. And then now we, and so you get the idea, you get the gist of what the super pig is and why it's so important. And then we immediately fast forward 10 years. Film starts in, 20, in 2007, and then jumps forward 10 years. And we have Mija, who is a young girl, uh, approximately 14 years old. And she is the granddaughter of the farmer who was chosen in Korea to take care of the super pig. And of course, Akja is basically her friend. Um, and surprise, surprise, they're the winner. Akja is taken off to New York, uh, unbeknownst to Mija, who thought that, uh, they were going to get to keep Akja. And she follows and off goes on an adventure that takes both Akja and Mija around the world and looks into the, the world of corporatism and everything, industrial food processing, uh, you know, PETA-esque uh, animal, you know, uh, animal friendliness fronts and stuff like that. Um, and, of course, just the love that people have for their pets. So, I I think that when the movie... And, and here's, here's the thing about the movie. When the movie isn't either trying to be some kind of existential, existential setup... Um, of just following Akja and Mija around and or trying to overtly preach at you. The movie's actually good. It's got really interesting characters, some zany, uh, some more, uh, some surface level wacky doodleness but underneath there's definitely more going on um and again some just zany to be zany and and yet all of them really have the, the characters that are given to you 
even some of the smaller characters really do have a, a depth to them. And there is a definite reason why everyone's there and everything's going on the way that they're going on. And it's really neat because when they explore those things, even to a lesser degree, um, or even sometimes to a kind of an outlandish degree, as especially in the case of uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, of Johnny Wilcox, uh, a zoologist, you know, kind of... Um, Oh, a la Steve Irwin, if you will. Um, there, there's, there's really interesting, you know, meatiness to these characters. The problem is, is that they don't spend enough time giving you the actual characters. Instead, they try and wrap several different adventures, misadventures, and some zaniness around a big, huge, preachy, pulpity, you know, thing about how they feel the makers of this film feel corporatism and, um, and again, industrial food processing and stuff like that are, are, you know, destroying the world, if you will. Um, I have no problem with movies with messages. Um, I, I, and I have no problem with allegories or anything like that, but much like the lesson of sausage party, I think that there is, there has to be a method to your madness. And I think that, um, either belittling, um, if not outright insulting, but definitely belittling the intelligence of your audience uh, to get your point across, does your film no justice, especially when you put it into a farce, much like Akja. Special effects are good, and again, the and it's a shame because the acting is really good. And when they aren't trying to beat you over the head with what this movie is about. There's there's a lot to be had there. Unfortunately, um, it's got a really poor setup. It's exceptionally slow for the first third of the film. Um, and they just don't properly explore the characters enough. At the end of the day, I give this one 2.25. It has so this movie for me had so much potential, and you can see that potential when they do real true character exploration. Unfortunately, it just doesn't deliver on that enough. When it's not slow, it's beating you over the head. Um, and, and I would think that even if you are someone who subscribes to this theory, I would find that I, I would think that maybe you might be tired, um, or at least worn out by the end. 2.25 out of 5. Come here! All right. Oh fucking hair, goddammit! All the other super pigs were on Flatland, accessible by car. Japan's one was five minutes from the airport. But you, I noticed that you had to leave the fucking mountaintop super pig till the end because you knew that the climb would rile me. Well, guess what? I'm riled. <laughs> Can somebody, can somebody at least bring me some water? Seeing as I'm about to be filmed for fucking television. And not sparkling water, I don't want to belch my way through the broadcast. Get him some water. I don't think they have sparkling water here. <laughs> oh, fucking film me, Jennifer. Can't fake these emotions. Oh, uh, film. 
Ten years ago, 26 local farmers from 26 far-flung countries were each given a super piglet. This year, I traveled to each one of those 26 farms to decide who will be invited to the best super pig fest in New York City, where it will be unveiled to the world. You've done an incredible job. Thank you. Panda the old man. Oh, Panda Johnny. Johnny, Johnny. Ever since she was little, I've always been fascinated with Ocha and her monthly health reports and data. I've only known her through numbers and graphs and pictures, but seeing her here today and studying her with my own eyes and hands, she amazes me even more. This is it, the moment of mutual trust between Miranda's very own Dr. Johnny and the esteemed local farmer. What do you got there, Tim? So I like the little girl quite a quite a lot in this movie. I think I think she plays it like a real little girl um the character she plays the character like a real little girl and her name An Seo Hoon An Seo Hoon but and what's the character's name oh Mija Mija yeah so Mija yeah Mija. she plays Mija like a real little girl like she feels like a natural character without Bon Joo Ho the director having her obviously making her obviously likable kind of like what you'd find in a Spielberg movie for instance, like the personality being very funny and adult-like in their reactions and nuances and the the line delivery. Because whenever you see a Spielberg movie, the, there's something the, the kids are very smart, not only just in the performances, how, how they're portraying their characters, and they're very personable. Well, this little girl just to me felt like she was a little girl, and when something funny happens with her, like whenever they're dressing her up. We've seen movies where you have that one character, the one ragamuffin character, whether if it was a boy or a girl, and there is some wealthier person that has to dress that ragamuffin up. And of course, the clothes, you're so used to that ragamuffin looking like a ragamuffin, once you put on fancy clothes on them, it just looks very funny and different. And of course, they don't feel comfortable in it, so their uncomfortableness is very funny. With this, this little girl, when they do dress her up, you can just tell, like, she wants nothing to do with it. She doesn't even like the shit. She's only there to find Akja. She's only there to find her best friend. And, and I think that was very interesting. And I like that a lot. There was more believability to her character because they were not trying to make her obviously likable and adult and personable, I guess. Uh, but she is personable in her own way. She plays her like a girl trying desperately to find her best friend and to bring it home. And this movie definitely has a very heavy story. Undermined by over-the-top characters. I wish those over-the-top characters became more grounded by its final act. And Tilda Swinton, her character of both Lucy Mirando and Nancy Mirando definitely becomes more grounded as the movie comes on because once the movie begins, you have her big speech, which is basically Lucy Mirando, very bubbly and happy with braces, explaining virtually to the audience what her goal is and setting up the movie. But then as the movie goes on, you find out, well, she she has this... Um, she butts heads with her sister, who you get an idea is like this the evil version of her, I guess. And 
you, you, you realize that she's actually not that bad of a person. And because she's not that bad of a person, that's what ultimately defeats her. So that, that works for her. But then you have Jake Gyllenhaal's character as Johnny Wilcox. And this guy is super goofy, and it definitely works. But there's a point in the movie where his character peaks when he has Okjaw alone in the laboratory where his madness really comes out. He really couldn't top that. So it just felt like his character at the end just kind of went to waste there in the last act. I would have liked to to have seen a more fitting ending to his character. But because we have all these over-the-top characters, and I'm also including Paul Dano and his group of anarchists there too, without these grounded characters, it, it definitely muddles the power that the ending could have had. You know, like that would have made the more sinister and the more horrifying ending have more of a punch. I mean, at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen this movie, stop, go watch it, come back. We'll wait for you. No, we won't. But at the end of the movie, so spoiler alert for like 20 seconds, at the end of the movie, the girl manages to save Okjaw. However, she leaves hundreds or thousands of other super pigs to be slaughtered. Like, they're, they're grazing in the field by the slaughterhouse. They're all going to die. Only to rescue a single baby super pig after its mother tosses it, I think, over the fence in front of the little girl and Okjaw, saving it from being slaughtered. And the mother is still behind the slaughterhouse gate, along with the hundreds or, or thousands of other super pigs. And it's, it's a very heavy moment. And because you have all this madcapness, over-the-top characters, all of that undermines the seriousness of this movie. And I ultimately felt like that was a missed opportunity. That wasn't necessarily my biggest knock against this film. My biggest knock was Paul Dano, probably one of the more underwhelming Paul Dano performances or characters I've seen, and I really like Paul Dano. Him and his anarchist group really didn't sit well with me until the last act of the movie when it felt like what they were fighting for, their reason made sense, and they actually felt like they weren't just dipshit protesters. And I really didn't really get the idea that they were actually good people until the end of the film. And it just sucks because I kind of felt this way with Snowpiercer as well. But I think ultimately I enjoyed watching this movie a lot more. Because despite the visual effects of Akjaw not being all that convincing, I was sold by the end of the film. And I thoroughly enjoyed the relationship between Akjaw and the little girl enough and the reason why she would risk anything to save her friend. I bought that enough to give this movie a 3.75 out of 5. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and this might be probably one of the better Netflix original movies I've seen uh, so far. So uh, I, I recommend it. It's definitely, I think a lot of people either really like it or not like it. I'm very curious as to what other people think of this film. Uh, so do write to us. Do let us know. Uh, I, I'm t- I don't want to hear the castration email jingle anymore. So uh, <laughs> let us know 
what you thought about Akja. But 3.75 out of 5 for me. It's interesting. It's interesting that I really loved Paul Dano's character. And I did not like Mija at all. Mainly because I thought that she... She was in no way, shape, even, even kind of taking into account the, you know, kind of the whimsical or the farcical nature of the movie or whatever. Um, she just was not, she was behaving like a, you know, like a five year old, not a 14 year old. So I think it's, yeah. it's, I thought that's, that's really kind of interesting. To, and, and I, and I thought I, I liked the understated nature of Paul Dano in this one. So made me, made me like him, made me like the ALF from the start. Elf. Well, he kind of looked like a, <laughs> uh, like a Japanese manga character or like an anime character. But yeah, no, that is very interesting. All right. Well, then last but not least, we have Spider-Man Homecoming. What's up, guys? So to become an Avenger, are there like trials or an interview? Do me a favor. Can't you just be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man? Just stay close to the ground. You're the Spider-Man from YouTube. Can you summon an army of spiders? No, Ned, no. Do you know him too? I stole his shield. Can I try the suit on? Badass. The rich and the powerful, like Stark, they don't care about us. The world's changing, boys. Time we change too. These weapons are crazy dangerous. Listen, Peter, forget the flying monster guy. There are people who handle this sort of thing. The illegal weapons barrier was at 2.30. You missed it. What if somebody had died? I was just trying to be like you. I wanted you to be better. I'm going to need the suit back. But I'm nothing without this suit. If you're nothing without this suit, then you shouldn't have it. I screwed up. You need to stop carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. I want you to understand. I'll do anything to protect my family. I know you know what I'm talking about. So don't mess with me. Because I will kill you and everybody you love. My friends are up there! The guy is still out there. I've just got to do this on my own. Just don't do anything stupid. I got this. All right? Yeah. So, Spider-Man Homecoming, 2017 American superhero film. Of course, uh, as you all know, it's Marvel. It's the Marvel-Sony collaboration. I'm glad they finally made a Spider-Man movie. Yes. Finally. I mean, it's about damn time. And even Jen. uh, We we all went and saw this movie, took the whole family, went and saw it this morning at the movie theater. And uh, my wife was like, wow, this is like the first... This is like the best one since the first one. I'm like, I know. This is really good since the very first Spider-Man back in 2002. So hats off. They finally got it right. Um, So directed by John Watts, produced by Kevin Feige and uh, Amy Pascal. Of course, um, this is the Tom Holland-driven model here where we've got uh, um, – Tom Holland's playing Peter Parker, who is, of course, the newly minted Spider-Man, right? And the fresh off of, uh, Captain America Civil War, uh, which they, in case for whatever reason you did not see Captain America Civil War, they make abundantly clear right from the get-go 
as Peter Parker was taking, you know, video on his cell phone of his adventures in Captain America Civil War. So, um, it pretty much is picking up shortly after that and, uh, follows him as he is really just wanting to become an Avenger. That's kind of like his lifelong dream. Uh, and then the struggles that he faces is just being the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Uh, of course, due to the, Alien tech from the original incident from the uh, first Avengers movie. Uh, we have got uh, Vulture, uh, played by Michael Keaton, who has crossed over from DC to Marvel and now is the bad guy instead of the hero. Um, and uh, he, uh, so, so he, his organization kind of, uh, comes to the attention of Spider-Man, and he, of course, is trying to get uh, Iron Man or Tony Stark to kind of get in there. Now, of course, the liaison there is Happy, who is, of course, played by John Favreau. Um, and it, it just kind of seems like he's going nowhere, and so he is pursuing this alien tech that's being illegally used as kind of his way to show, look, I'm ready, I'm ready to go. Um, and then as we always say, adventures, or, or as I like to say, shenanigans ensue. Um, so what I liked about this movie is that they finally, with, with Marvel and Sony playing nice and working together, they have finally got a coherent story that works well because it can blend in at its leisure. It can blend in and out of the Avengers universe and the rest of the Marvel movies as they need. Uh, and so they can give you the stories that they want to tell independently of, of, uh, of Peter Parker, you know, at home in New York um, and anything that can expand or bleed over and pull the rest of the Avengers in can be done. Or if he needs to go and help the Avengers with something special every once in a while, they can do that. So they've really and firmly grounded Spider-Man in his own universe that allows him to actually be a kid that allows him to grow and be the Peter Parker that we know he can be. But at the same time, have an actual place in the larger Marvel universe. That foundation sets up this movie to be great. Not to mention you've got some, uh, you've really got, um, a likable bad guy. This is with, with, with Vulture, you've got a bad guy that you can, even if you don't agree with or condone, you can at least understand his point of view. And to a certain degree, he's kind of an honorable villain. And it makes you, you know, you really kind of want to be more, you, you really want to feel for this guy. And so they created a villain, not necessarily with a heart, but at least with kind of some form or fashion of not necessarily moral, but at least an ethical barometer. And it gives you something that you can relate to. And that's what makes a good villain. Of The best villains are the ones that you can't help but like in a certain way or shape or form, even if you don't like what they're doing. So they've got a great foundation. They've given you a good villain. And they've got a really decent Spider-Man. Tom Holland does a great job. For those of you who aren't aware, he's actually an English dude who's... Uh, who's 21. So they've got someone young enough uh, because he's playing kind of 15-ish here in the movie. 
At one point, he even says, I am 15. <laughs> they make a point of showing, of telling that he's a sophomore as well. So they didn't get someone who was 27 trying to play a teenager. They got someone who it, who's really able to grow into that part as well. Um, so casting was good. The story is good. The villain is good. So what could be wrong with this movie? All right. For me, um, the special effects, I don't know. It did, special effects were really decent. I, I gotta give, hand it to them. They were decent for what they were, but still kind of lacking for me. Um, and so that kind of took me out of it, especially in some of the bigger scenes, not necessarily for the finale, but in some of the bigger scenes of the movie, I was kind of, I don't know, I just kind of wanted a little bit more. Um, and, and I, and, and there's a scene, for instance, where there's an elevator that's collapsing and stuff like that. Though I liked the tightness of that, and I wish they could have built on that a little bit more because when they're doing everything leading up to the uh to this particular elevator scene, it it's not that it feels forced, but it just feels like it's it's almost not done enough. Um it's not enough to to make you go Bleh, or anything like that, but it's 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 borderline on that regard. The other thing that I didn't like about that, I like about this uh, movie is that it really feels like they were forcing the whole, oh, look, it's Avengers friendly. It's Avengers friendly. And ultimately it kind of led to some serious, to, to, I don't want to say plot holes, but definitely areas that were feeling a little tired. So for example, the, the happy dynamic, um, as kind of the liaison between Tony and, uh, Peter, it's fun at the beginning, but you kind of see it as the plot device that it is. And so once again, that starts to feel forced as the movie progresses. And, Everything that's done isn't bad exactly, but it starts kind of feeding itself and you don't really feel the surprises that they wanted to, that they want to throw at you, uh, in the final act of the movie. So again, nothing is bad, but there are just some things where, um, hopefully they'll be able to grow on that and they'll take this foundation that's been, that's really, really good and move it forward. But in the meantime, Special effects, a little bit left to be desired in that department, and also certain key elements, again, all of the happy uh, angle as well. Um, just They just need a little bit more polishing going forward. All that being said, 4.25 out of 5. This was really an enjoyable movie for me. I had so much fun watching this movie. Uh, definitely did not feel two hours and ten minutes go by. And was glad I went and saw it this morning and took the whole family. What's the matter? Thought you loved Larb. It's too Larby? Not Larby enough. How many times do I have to say Larb before you talk to me? You know I Larb you. I'm just stressed the internship and I'm tired. The Stark internship? I have to tell you, not a fan of that Tony Stark. After an ATM robbery was thwarted by Queen's own what? colorful local crime stopper, the Spider-Man. You spot something like that happening, you turn and you run the other way. Yeah. yeah, 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 of course. Six blocks away from us. Well, we didn't order that. Some house. Oh, thanks. I think he larbs you. 
4.25 out of 5. Bring us home, Tim. This is a Sony movie, and I, I do work for Sony. I've seen this movie twice without paying. I saw the first, uh, the first time I saw it was a, was a working cut of it back in January. So I saw a cut of the movie six months ago, and I got to watch the movie at work for free. With that being said, I have a few questions for you, Matt. Because since this is the third iteration of Spider-Man, and it's our third Peter Parker, mm. was the absence of the Spider-Sense felt? Was that something that you missed? I guess I... Oh, the Spidey-Sense? No. And here's why. Because... <clears throat> They incorporated the Spidey sense into his active um, action and mitigation as he was as he as he was doing whatever it was that he was doing. So, um, anytime something would get thrown at him, anytime he would have to dodge, duck, bump around, or whatever, um, all of those things are incorporated into his spidey sense. So they didn't have to give you anything other than watching him be able, just like if you've ever tried to step on a spider and all of a sudden it zigs when you zag. They do that as an active component of when Peter is actually, you know, doing his Spider-Man gig. So no, I did not miss it because they did such a great job of just actively incorporating that into his abilities as he's, you know, fighting crime. Okay, okay. That, that's a good response. I, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, which we might actually see more of the Spidey sense in the future, according to Kevin Feige, Feige, Foge, Funge. So what did you think about Tony Stark as a mentor to Peter Parker? In... I guess minor, I guess spoiler alert, at the end of the movie, what gives Peter Parker that strength was the voiceover of a previous conversation between him and Tony Stark, where Tony tells him he has to be more than the suit that he wears to actually push himself out of that rubble that he's trapped under. Sure. Um, Okay. In terms of him being the, quote, mentor, if you will, um, one of those things that I felt needed polish. Uh, I liked where they were going with it. I liked the idea of it, but I did feel that it needed some polish. Um, you know me. I try to be as spoiler-free uh, spo- spoiler as I can. Um, so, yes, that along with, like, the happy dynamic, one of those things that needed polish. However... As someone who's seen all the Iron Man movies and all the Marvel movies and all the Avengers movies, I guess, well, I guess if I say all the Marvel movies, right? Um, that one line coming from Tony is really and truly the only line that matters because that's something that Tony spends literally five movies, if you include two Avengers movies, um, coming to terms with. Is he more than the suit? Can he be Tony Stark? without being Iron Man. And so anybody else saying that line would be disingenuous. So that line that gives that spurs him on at the end, yeah. I, I thought that that was the only line worth uh worth having. Outside of that, it's just typical Tony Stark fun 
uh, you know, RDJ style delivery and definitely needed some polish. Congratulations, Matt. You, you passed the quiz that I, <laughs> that I prepared. I felt that this was a pretty fresh take on the Spider-Man franchise. I was kind of worried, especially when I went to go see it six months ago, that I was going to be feeling Spider-Man fatigue. When I saw the first trailer, I felt pretty damn good about the movie. Like, I thought the first trailer was a pretty solid trailer. Yeah, that's the one with well, the MGMT "Time to Pretend" song uh, attached to it. If I may, if I may, I apologize for sure. interrupting. This seems I, I did have a question for you though. Oh yes, yeah. D- did you feel or notice the absence of Uncle Ben? No, because Aunt May is smoking hot. Who cares about <laughs> Uncle Ben? You know, fifty-two, <laughs> and Jesus Christ, does everybody want to just like think she's the hottest thing? And she's a pretty cool uh, aunt too. If she catches her her nephew nearly naked next to his best friend, oh yeah, and she just you know, hey, uh, put on some clothes. I mean, it was yeah, and of course the 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 amazing what the f- right at the end of the movie yeah, that was yeah that was awesome. that was pretty. Solid. All right, anyways, carry on. I'm sorry, I apologize. Yeah. But. I th- see. I thought you were going to ask me about uh, the 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 temp cut. And how it differed from this one. Nope, 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 nope. I just thought it was uh, that something that was also blatantly missing. Like you noticed, with, like you mentioned with the Spidey sense. That, yeah. I mean, there was literally zero mention of Uncle Ben. So. But the cool thing is is that, like, uh, as, as well as the Spidey sense, there's going to be more movies where some of that stuff can come into play. Because right. he is still, he's not yet Spider-Man. Like, we haven't really seen him as I mean, I don't know if this again if this is the right thing to say or not, but like adolescent Spider-Man, younger Spider-Man, where he's still in high school, he has a lot of shit to he's deal spider with. Teen. Spider teen, <laughs> that he has to deal with girls, school. I mean, what I thought was pretty funny is like he's like, "We'll I have to do this," and then Ned is like, "But you have a Spanish quiz." As the Spanish quiz is the one thing he should worry about instead of. Uh, the the fake Stark internship or having to having to track down bad guys, you know, all that stuff. So it's it, I really like the whole the John Hughes quality that they were going for and the upbeat feeling towards these characters. I like it a lot. It made the movie that much more entertaining when all these people aren't like suffering, you know, like there's not a whole lot of drama. And I kind of like that. I like the the whole Uncle Ben thing not being prevalent because there's a pot. Well, no, I guess I was going to say there might be a possibility that maybe Tony Stark and Aunt May get together. But obviously, if you've seen the movie, you know, that probably will not happen. But I, I think that just would have been too much for this one movie. And I think with the idea of the Spidey sense, which Kevin Feige, Feige, Foge, Funge has said that that's something that they'll probably play with later on. The movie, this movie doesn't feel like it's trying to carry too much weight, which I thought was pretty refreshing. And that definitely lends itself to not being Spider-Man, to not lending itself to the Spider-Man fatigue that I felt when the amazing Spider-Man movies came out. And I think it's also worth mentioning, at least in my point of view, pertaining to the Avengers stuff, uh, the mentioning of the Avengers is that the Avengers, at least in my opinion, the mentioning of them is really there to set up the story and the payoffs of the movie, which is why normally that shit, if, if you followed any of our Marvel reviews at all, 
that is something that ultimately annoyed the shit out of me in in most of these films when they keep referencing the freaking Avengers or the Zerkoff blah blah agreement when that freaking town that city fell on fucking people and killed all this fucking political jar Avengers jargon that they bring up in most of these movies nowadays. Whenever the Avengers are brought up, and it's mainly just Tony Stark, Avengers Tower, Happy, and, you know, Captain America makes these really funny uh, and, I think, inventive little appearances, it, it lends itself mainly to the overall story and the payoffs. For example, at the end of the movie, the Avengers Tower, it's really in the movie to set up the final boss fight scene at the end of the film involving the plane and involving why this plane is carrying all this stuff that the Vulture and his crew might want to hijack it and steal from, you know? So it makes a little bit more sense. It's not just blatantly trying to tie these movies all together. And and I think this is definitely one of the smarter movies. But I think a main technical complaint for me, there are a handful of blue screenshots that are not good (laughs) <laughs> they're just bad but then you have the look of the movie it's, it's very bright and more like aesthetically pleasing to watch unlike the other Marvel movies or Avengers movies or Captain America's where, where the colors are darker and the colors just really don't pop out but it, I just felt they could have done something more to it that's what I really liked about the Sam Raimi movies is that to me it actually felt like and how it was it was a little more stylized with the characters and a little bit more having fun with the material with this movie they were still having fun with the material but it was still very much character based the characters were having fun and i would have liked to have seen them incorporate that a little bit more into the look of the movie i heard somebody talking about the the end credits where you have this fun punk rock end credit song and then you have the stylized credit sequence but the look of that the movie just really doesn't i mean it wasn't quite really like that and I, I would have liked a little bit more of more more of that feeling uh, in the actual movie itself. But overall, it's a very interesting movie. It's definitely a unique film as a whole. Technically, I thought it could have been more unique. I still give this one 4.25 out of 5 as well. I think it's better than Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. 4.25 out of 5. And I, I'm very glad this movie is doing well because this is actually a good movie. And they actually treated the source material with respect. You know, I appreciate it. So 4.25 out of 5. Awesome, awesome. All right, well, that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week's movie is going to be War for the Planet of the Apes. And without further ado, I believe it's time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on. Is there something wrong with the food? No, the food was excellent. Perhaps you're not happy with the service? No, no, no complaints. It's just that we have to go. I'm having rather a heavy period. And we have a train to catch. Oh, Oh, yes, yes, of course, we have a train to catch. And I don't want to start bleeding all over the seats. All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NitWit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can also subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher. 
Patriot Radio, as well as follow us on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, this is Matt saying the things to Tom Holland. I get to say this. The most important thing in anything you do is always trying your hardest, because even if you try your hardest and it's not as good as you'd hoped, you still have that sense of not letting yourself down. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Desert wraps are all up. Things seem to have worked out pretty good for the dude and Walter. I guess that's the way the whole darn human comedy keeps perpetuating itself down through the generations. Well, I hope you folks enjoyed yourselves. Catch you later on down the trail. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>